Today on Bobby and Jens, we have a Paralympic gold medalist. She's also a coach, a physical therapist, and has a doctorate in physical therapy. So basically, Jens, she's a superhero. Absolutely. She's a superhero and she is just a bundle of energy. And she has a lot of absolutely cool stories to share with us. Oh, yes. So please welcome Dr. Meg Fisher to Bobby and Jens. Welcome, Dr. Meg Fisher to Bobby and Jens. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, I wish I was in Germany. Um, well, I'm not a big fan of your coffee, but your butter and your pretzels and your apfelstrudel and, oh, apfelschorda, I could definitely go for some. And the East Coast is nice. I hear you've got good trees right now, good colors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't get doctors very often on Bobby and Jens. So give us a little bit of background about your, your education um, and being able to sign your name with DR in front of it. I I don't sign many DRs because it's just it's. Um, uh, well, gosh, I mean, I earned it, so it's kind of fun, um, but I, I, I like being Meg. I like being very accessible. Um, so my doctorate is in physical therapy. I consider myself a, basically a body mechanic, a movement specialist. Um, people bring your cars through your bikes to your mechanic, and people bring their bodies to me. I've been working in human medicine um, for about, oh, just shy of 20 years. Initially, I was an athletic trainer, which meant I was on the sidelines of sporting events, working with acute injuries. And then I went on to get my emergency medical technician. And then from there, I went to get my doctorate in physical therapy. So how long did you go to um, university? And you were like old fashioned, like be there every day, or you did half of it like remote from home? How do we, our listeners have to understand the yeah. whole process of it? Um, so in, in the States, you kind of have a straight shot through it. I mean, it's pretty common around the world. I never took a, a gap year necessarily. Um, I went straight from living in Canada to being in the States where I went to school. And then I went to university. And at first I was a college tennis player full-time. So I was a freshman. And then I actually did have to take a little bit, about six months off, a semester off uh, for a significant injury that ended my collegiate tennis career and um, kind of set me up on this cycling trajectory From there, I went directly um, and got my bachelor's of science in human performance or athletic training. From there, I went and worked at um, Big Ten. At the time, it was Big Ten. So it just means a big school. And I was an athletic trainer for the University of Washington Huskies. I came back to school because I thought I wanted to be a physician and take a few credits. And then I just got really hooked in this uh, first actually triathlon bug and then cycling bug. Um, and then, unfortunately... You know, you can't always pay your bills as a cyclist. And so I thought, well, I've got this great career as a physical therapist. And I was also recovering from an injury that I thought was going to end my cycling career. So I applied for um, physical therapy school. And then my hip had the audacity to get better with the help of physical therapy. And so then I, um, that led me in the trajectory to actually train for the 2012 games while being a full-time student. So my clinical practicum actually got moved to Colorado Springs so that I could live at the Olympic Training Center and um, see patients during the day and do, do all my training um, in my dorm room or on the weekends in LA or where have you. Um, my clinical was very flexible, but it, it's always been a pretty much full-time, either um, academic or sporting career. Well, you know, you're you're a 
paracyclist, a para-athlete, a para-Olympian. Um, can you give us a little bit of background of the different categories to be a Paralympian? Oh, sure. Um, so a little background. I'm 40 years old, you guys. Like I just cracked the 40-year-old can this year. So I've been doing this for a while. And I was hurt in um, June 30th of 2002. So that's over 20 years ago. And at the time, I came from a world of elite able-bodied athletics. Again, I was a competitive college tennis player, so I didn't know what para-sport meant. Actually, I thought mistakenly that maybe it was less than or maybe something to be, um, honestly, in, in my opinion, was to be ashamed of. Like my, I was ashamed of my physical inability. I wanted to be as good as I was when I had my two legs. Um, so going back to what made me a Paralympian was a 20. 21 years ago, um, I was a involved in a rollover car accident where my car rolled eight and a half times. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't alone. Um, my girlfriend was driving the car and she succumbed to her injuries that day. And it was, it's still incredibly sad. Um, I had my left leg ripped off. I got my, a really bad head injury and was in a coma with my pupils were fixed and dilated and had to have some brain surgery and machines breathing for me and all that stuff. And they weren't sure how I was going to wake up. It's a miracle of modern medicine. Um, really just the, how hard it is to kill a human. We're really tough suckers. And, um, we, um, we just keep living and then having this support system and, and sports has always been something that really was a motivator. I wanted to get back to the tennis court, tennis court, was a little bit out of reach for me, at least at the competitive level I was used to. And then people introduced me to the bike and the sport of triathlon. So para-sport is meant for people who have physical impairments. Para means alongside. I think it's absolutely a beautiful word. It's a, uh, it has a Latin origin. It covers the globe. So you'll see the Paralympics. Uh, you'll see para-sport um, in really anything. Um, not everything is Olympic sport and not everything is a Paralympic sport. Uh, we do not have pencil sharpening yet or underwater basket weaving, but there are some sports in the Paralympics that are not in the able-bodied Olympics, such as goalball. That's for individuals who are blind or we would say have a visual impairment because there's actually different levels of visual loss. Not everybody who's blind has zero vision. Some people have some vision. Um, and so goal ball is something um, akin to soccer or um, European football, but the ball has bells in it and you're not allowed to clap because if somebody is playing goal ball and needs to hear the ball ringing to, in order to defend it from their goal, if somebody's clapping or cheering, that impairs the, the field of play. Um, so that's a really unique sport. Um, i first uh, worked with uh, the triathlon teams and helped get triathlon into the Paralympics. And there's different levels of triathlon, uh, triathletes with physical impairments. And this is where I kind of ramble and I get annoying. Um, am I answering your question? Am I getting a little off topic? I can get into the deep end of the weeds. So shall I just bring it back to think about wrestling? Okay, guys, like think about you've got like the 18 year old, 100 pound freshman, and then you've got like the 200 pound senior. You're not going to have the 100 pound freshman wrestle against the 200 pound senior. Like that's not fair. 
So in para-sport, we do kind of have weight classes. We try to make the field as fair as possible, given that some people maybe use a wheelchair for mobility, or some people, again, have visual impairments, or some people have uh, maybe multiple sclerosis, one that often isn't a visually recognized impairment because more or less they look quote unquote normal. And we know that's a spectrum that is, but um, maybe they have weakness in some form in their legs or tremors or spasticity. Cerebral palsy is also another classifiable impairment. Limb loss is a really easy one because we joke. I mean, it's really cut and dry, but I'm um, ching. Um, and so um, there are sports for really every level of impairment. And I raced as a C4 um, I don't know what C stands for. I don't know what four stands for, but the most able-bodied rider would be a C5. Um, and they're often racing on pro level teams. Some C4s were able to do that. Um, and C1 is a, has a high level of impairment. Then there's hand cyclists as well as tricycle riders. And these trikes are not your grammar school tricycle. These things are carbon fiber, badass disc wheels, hydraulic brakes. Like they just rip. Okay. End of story. What questions do you have? Um, you mentioned about the um, the accident. What would you think was more challenging? Repair your body and become walking again? Or the mental challenge of, you know, accepting yourself the way you are and realizing, hey, I lost a part of me, but I'm still here. I can still do sport. What was more challenging, the physical part or the psycho psychological part oh, of yes. your recovery? Um, that's a very thoughtful question. And I think everybody can relate to like, you know, whatever injury it is in their life. I mean, it's, we all have bumps and bruises. Maybe they're physical. Sometimes they're, um, you know, in your personal life or your professional life. Like it's much easier to like go out and find another job. Like that's almost the easier part, but that like the psychological challenges of getting laid off, that'll really stick with you. Um, and that I'd say like similarly, like losing my physical ability, pretty easy in the scheme of things, like the nuts and bolts of recovering from amputation, the nuts and bolts of relearning to walk much more easy than the lifetime of like, this is where I get a little emotional sometimes because I never wanted to be this way. Like nobody ever wants to lose their ability. And I think it's given me great compassion for the patients I work with or older individuals because like my mom, she just passed away last month and she was 73. And like, she still dreamed and felt like she was 20 and wanted to be on the tennis courts again or sailing the globe, but her body just wouldn't cooperate. And that's and similarly, like, my body just doesn't always cooperate. Like I could climb Mount Everest, literally I could, but I could not walk down it. Um, losing my foot the way that I have it means going downhill, going downstairs. It's kind of like going downhill wearing a ski boot. Like everybody can walk up to the lodge at lunchtime and look cool. But then as soon as you try to walk out of the lodge to get to your skis again, you look like a fool going down the stairs because your ankles don't move. And basically my ankle doesn't move. And so I walk funny. Um, every day, like I... And reminded of the hard things that happened and the pain, the physical pain, but it's the emotional stuff. Yeah, definitely much harder. But thank you so much for sharing all that. You know, we didn't really have the, the plan of, you know, focusing on that. But to me, 
you know, you come off to me as being an extremely resilient person. And that's something that you just don't learn overnight. I mean, there has to, I mean, we all, like you said, go through our ups and downs, our challenges, our good times, our bad times. Sure. But what do you think was innate in your character to get up off the mat, so to say, when, when something like this happened and what, what tricks do you use to this day to stay motivated? Because, you know, you're an extremely positive um, person and speaker, but sometimes does that come out at a, at a cost? You know, sometimes you may feel a little like you need some inspiration. You need some help. Um, I always have said to, to people that I've worked with in the past and coached is when you're strong, you offer help. When you're weak, you ask for it. And there has to be a balance, um, in my opinion. But I was just curious to hear how you get through those ups and downs and, and especially the initial acceptance of your, your future moving forward after your accident. Well, that is one loaded question or multiple questions in there. And I think initially it was more just, it was really nice to have the nuts and bolts of healing. Like there is generally a trajectory. Like I'm going to open the playbook of physical therapy. Like if somebody has a knee replacement, there is legitimately a protocol that we follow for, you know, what to expect one week after surgery, two weeks. I mean, actually day of, I mean, there is a trajectory that's expected. And initially recovering from my injuries, there was more or less, I stayed on that trajectory and following the recipe was relatively easy. My days were full of doctor's visits, uh, physical therapy, um, relearning to talk, relearning to do the things. And you don't really focus on, or you don't really have time to think about the emotional and psychological challenges and, and the magnitude of all that's lost. Again, when you're 19, think about the perspective you had at 19. It's different than it is now. And so at 19, you know, nothing hurt. I felt like the world was my oyster. I um, could conquer anything. So like this hiccup, if you will, like as big as it was, I didn't think it would be as big. And now having spent more of my life on one leg than two, I go, wow, how much I didn't know. I'm so glad I didn't know it then. I mean, in the 20 years since, I've been told a number of times you'll never walk again and had various levels of um, needing more help. And as far as being positive, like I think you might sometimes uh, confuse positivity with stubbornness. Um, and I'm incredibly stubborn to a fault, to an absolute fault at times. It, I mean, it's gotten me really far, but it's also gotten me in a lot of trouble. And um, I don't regret that. And I don't think being stubborn is necessarily a bad thing. Um, tenacious might be something. Resilient might be one, but I'm stubborn as hell. You tell me I won't do That's it, good. I'll do it. You tell me you, won't, you yeah. won't break this foot, I will. And what you can't tell is I am about five feet tall. I am just over a hundred pounds. Like I am not an intimidating person. Um, so like I basically ride a child size bike. And so like it is actually, let me be more honest. I'm a whole lot of average. I'm five foot four. I'm 125 pounds. That is like average across the board, but I am small in general. And so like being a smaller person, like 
maybe it's a little Napoleon syndrome. Like I am going to do what you say I can't do. Like I'm going to be as fast as you. I'm going to be as strong as you. And if a one-legged girl can catch you, maybe you should go faster or at least give me something better to chase. Now let's talk about something easy and just really positive. You are a Paralympic gold medalist. What was that experience like? <laughs> I am not sure we can have this conversation yet. Like, I feel like you know as much as anyone what that's like. Um, uh, so I went, my first games was the 2012 games. So that was legitimately 10 years after my accident. So um, if you think about the anniversaries, like your first anniversary is a big deal. Second one's kind of a big deal. Three and four kind of get washed under the table. Five years, it's big. And then like six, seven, eight, nine kind of fall away. And then 10 is this... Um, it's always monumental. And it, uh, to be able to go there, um, my mom was there. Um, my girlfriend, um, was there. It was so cool to have like 10 years after really everything was taken away to get to where the stars and stripes. I always wanted to be a professional tennis player, but as soon as you like hit 20 years old, you realize you're not going to be the next Monica Seles. And then, um, you kind of make do, um, and again, I never really knew what it meant to be a Paralympian. I didn't think I qualified. I didn't know what was a qualifying impairment. And again, I thought that the Paralympics might be less than, or, um, of course we've watched the Tour de France and the Olympics and you think parasport might be something to be pitied even like, I don't even, those are were my feelings of it until I was in it. And it is cutthroat. Like Jens, you mentioned Anthony Zahn, like that guy was amazing. He was also a giant jerk. Don't let me like put you in the wrong way. Like, and I mean that with love. I mean that with kindness. Like he would, he pushed me so hard. Um, I had never worked so hard and dedicated so much of myself, time, resources, sacrifices from family to earn a spot on that team going to London. Like I had no idea the level of competition people are so fast, um, to train your engine, to do those things. Like, again, maybe some of the riders or listeners here are like, no, to do a 20 K time trial. Like it doesn't sound like much, but that is freaking hard. Like almost you have to have no love for yourself. That saying of a time trial, like you literally, whoever wins is the ones that can like hurt the most, that can suffer the most, that can tell their legs to shut up. And I'm going to use that term. Like you just have to keep going. And I think that stubbornness that I have, and um, maybe it is the, the the trials that I've I've lived through, is that I tell myself that I can suffer more than you. Like, that's what I tell myself. Like, that's how I psych myself up. I say like, okay, I want this to be uphill. I want it to be hot. I want it to be awful. I want it to be windy. I want it to be a technically challenging course because I want it to hurt because I know that I can hurt more than the other riders. And If they're going to beat me, they are going to really suffer to do that. And bravo, but I'm not going to give it to them. And um, I think that's what's um, propelled me into the success and winning that gold. Um, I was one of the the later riders. And so you and you don't really know how you finish in a time trial because, like, you got to wait for the times to come in. And 10 years ago, 12 years ago, like – even it took a little bit longer. So your, your, your name's at the top of the list, the top of the list. And then the other riders are coming in and somehow your name stays at the top of the list. And all of a sudden, like there's no other rider to come across the line. And you're like, Holy 
crap. Um, it was very awesome. I felt like it was an opportunity to give back to the people who helped me get there. Wow. But I, I read somewhere where you've said that you want to erase limits. How yeah. do we go about that in sport? I mean, I've heard if you say you can or you say you can't, you're probably right. But how True. do we erase those limits that, that we put on ourselves? Because obviously you've succeeded very well in that. I mean, I'm sure you both can speak to this. Uh, it's continuing to put yourself in uncomfortable positions. Like it's just, I was in a really good spot at that time, 10 years after my injury, I had a good relationship. I was, you know, pursuing the college degree that I wanted. I had great mentors. I had great teammates. Um, that 2012 team, like we are still tight. Like we, um, still have zoom meetings with each other all over the country. And I, so I had this perfect symphony of things that allowed me to get into a place where I could sincerely suffer the most, um, in 2016. So like, so in 2012, it really was poetic. Like I won the gold. I also won a silver. And then I went to Paris after the games and got an engagement ring on the Eiffel tower and then I came back for the 2016 games and I was getting a divorce. And I, uh, yeah. Um, so like, and now like my mom passed away last month and there's very few losses as much as losing your mom. And I'm supposed to ride a hundred miles this weekend and I am not sure how I'm going to do it. Cause generally like I've done unbound 200 this year, mud bound, the infamous mud bound, most pros didn't finish. A lot of people didn't finish, but I finished in part due to that grit and tenacity where I just don't give up. Um, but when things are hard, when other things outside the bike are hard, it's hard to go hard on the bike. So when you say erasing limits, this is a long way of saying like the other parts in your life have to be in alignment. If you're going to exceed limits on the bike, like if you want to exceed limits in your family, like, you know, push the limits of like having this amazing family, then you maybe have to put your priorities not on the bike. Like it's all about where you put your time and um, how you align yourself, if that makes any sense. I would say, I mean, I'm just on the outside, but if you listen careful, your mom would say, daughter, I don't want you to mess up your life, to miss your life. I want you to keep going. Oh, I yes. support you. Yes. I'm sure she would sit up there, look down yes. to you and go, daughter, go for it. That is what you yes. made for. That's what you trained for. So I think you don't have to put yourself like, go, hey, I want to win this. No, but go there right. and finish it. Yes. I'm sure your mom would be happy for that. I'm sure. Oh, thank you for saying that. You got tears in my eyes. Who's cutting onions? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Um, I'm the same here. Yeah. Um, if you want to take a break, that that's fine. Um, maybe to, for, for my curiosity and hopefully for our listeners and viewers as well, um, Paralympic sport, especially cycling, um, in your case involves prostheses, right? Yes. And mm -hmm. You know, we, we, 
we walk out to the garage, we pump up our tires, we <laughs> put both yeah. legs over the top tube and we're off. Um, can what? you talk yeah. us through that adaptation and, and like, sure. I don't know, how much do they cost? Are they custom made oh. to each person? Yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit of information on that? Because I'm very, very curious. Oh yeah. It's so fun. Um, it's so easy for people to come up to me because like, um, again, I'm not super intimidating. I'm very smiley that like, people can come up to me and tell me about like the injuries they've had in their life or, you know, other people use prostheses and then they, they you know, it's just like, how does that thing work? And so, um, let me just go back and say the bike is highly adaptable. I mean, from tricycles to bicycles, to tandem bicycles, to unicycles, I mean, recumbent cycles, like I don't ride the same bike as you, Bobby, which I'm sure you don't ride the same bike as Jens and neither one of you would fit on my bike. Um, like they're all custom made to us more or less, whether it's stem, saddle, bars, like there are so many ways to adapt a bike. I happen to ride a bike um, that's more or less a normal upright bike. What my adaptation is, is I use a mismatched crank set only by five millimeters. So 170 on the right and a 165 on the left. So it's not a lot, but it is significant. And then uh, you can often adjust where your cleat placement is, right? It's like some people have, you know, everyone's feet are a little bit different or um, cue angles. I mean, golly, like we can go down the rabbit hole of bike fitting. And uh, for me, I also have a prosthesis. So which, uh, um, if you can imagine, like, Basically, my left leg or my prosthetic is a little bit longer than my right leg. I also have my cleat pl basically placed underneath my heel. So in reality, I have about three and a half inches of my tibia. That's what's left. So I don't have a lot of lever arm to create knee extension or knee flexion. I do have my hip muscles so I can create hip extension. So I can push down on the pedal. That's just about it. I can't pull up on it. I have no sweep across the top, none across the bottom. There's just no mechanical leverage there. Um, and I have the cleat placed under the heel as well um, so that I don't have to reach down as far at the bottom of the pedal stroke. And then at the top, I have the shorter crank arm so that uh, I don't get as much knee flexion. I'm prone to developing blisters on the back of my left knee. And that can be like... You have no idea. The smallest blister can be debilitating. Um, and so that, that's the adaptations I have to my bike, which are actually fairly minimal, but which effectively means about 75% of my power, give or take or more or less, comes from just my right leg. So my left leg is tiny. I also only have half of my abdominal muscles. They took those out somewhere, threw them in a can, got rid of them. Like I can't even do a sit up if I wanted to. I'm like a turtle when I'm laying on the ground. Uh, so like I don't, my, the left side of my body is not as integrated as my uh, right side. So I basically um, power my bike with my right leg. And then there are people who use um, only their right leg entirely and have a kind of a prosthetic socket stuck to their bike. Or Anthony Zahn, we talk about, he had this uh, a neurological impairment called Charcot-Marie-Tooth, which meant he had no discernible strength in his hands or his feet. And it was progressive neurological impairment. So when he was a younger human, he had normal strength in his hands and feet. And over time that completely went away. Thank goodness for shifting. Like, um, especially SRAM has been great with their ETAP, um, or access, whatever you want to call it. Like it, it, the blips and so forth enable people who have decreased hand dexterity to be able to shift. And then you think about hydraulic brakes, 
I mean, compared to the power of a rim brake, if somebody has decreased hand strength, they can still actuate the brakes. Um, this is still great for people who are using hand cycles because if somebody's using their hands to power their bike, like being able to shift and brake, like it's the adaptations that bikes are moving forward now that able-bodied people are, you know, having a great time with, like it really is um, a game changer for so many people. We'll be back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Meg. Now you talked about some of the challenges you have on the bike. So I believe there is, is a world in between doing the three kilometer pursuit at the Paralympics on yes. the track controlled environment, only like yes. three to four minutes. It's a clean environment. And then That's you go awesome. on a hundred mile yeah. gravel adventure. That, that's yeah. a whole different universe. Was it easy yeah. to adapt to that? And, and, and what are your challenges on these long, long rides? Ooh. To drink enough, to wow. stay in the saddle, the dust, the dirt gets caught everywhere. Yes. Or what, what's your challenges? Oh, um, like, first and foremost, I always want to say, like, anybody with a physical impairment is a human first. And, like, the similarities that we have across the spectrum, like, again, we are more similar than we are different. And like, while maybe I don't use a wheelchair or a, uh, a cane to assist my vision or a service dog of some sort, like I can understand some of that. Like I can understand the challenges that honestly, like the pro men are experiencing. Cause you know what? You guys get hungry. I get hungry too. Okay. Like you have to go over those bumps. So do I. And people say, well, they're going so much faster. It's like, Yes, maybe their 100-mile effort takes them four and a half or five hours, depending on conditions, whereas mine takes it closer to 10 hours, nine hours, or 10 hours. I would say I had a harder day in the saddle. I had to work a whole nine-hour day. They didn't even pull in a full day's work. Bunch of slackers. Because um, I'm still working my... <laughs> That's a very nice way of looking at it. Awesome. <laughs> well, because I'm working my maximal effort. Their maximal effort is faster. They've got a double engine. They're cheating. They're leg doping as far as I'm concerned. Everybody else is leg doping. Um, but what it uh, kind of goes back to, like my challenges are the same as anyone for the most part. Fueling the engine. That's, uh, <laughs> that is another rabbit hole of we could go down. But I guess like physically my challenges are um, – Like if I have to get off my bike and carry it or something like that, because in these hundred mile, 200 mile gravel races, there's often creek crossings. Uh, there's often times where there's mud and they kind of like to run us through the gauntlet so we can have our stories that, you know, live on for millennia. Um, for instance, Mudbound this year was, I mean, 10 miles into the race, we were faced with about three miles of hike bike. I can't pick up my bike and carry it because I have to use it as a balance tool in order for me to walk across an uneven structure. Basically like my biking legs, kind of a pirate leg. It's just a peg leg. Um, so if I can't use my bike for balance, I'm in trouble. But if you push your bike through mud, it picks up mud and then your wheels don't spin. And then every your drivetrain gets mucked. Okay. Well, I would ride my bike as far as I could. It would get mucked up, I'd stop, clean it out, maybe carry it or push it along the side of the road, get back in, ride it, blah, 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 stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. So Yeah, my unbound this year, the 200, I think it was five miles or something like that, um, was 
the slowest it's ever been. But I, half the field didn't finish. Half the pro field, like, almost didn't finish. So, I, you know, showing up is one thing to an event. And I wish more people would finish it, even if they had bad days, because I think that says a lot. Um, secondly, like, if I went to – I went did Leadville this year, 106-ish miles, all above 10,000 feet. I finished in the top, top half of women, of all women. I was greater than the top half of all finishers. Um, and that was my best Leadville finish. My steamboat the next week was faster than, you know, way better, better than like 50%. And again, I was the only woman doing it out there. Uh, and man too, I think with, you know, using a prosthesis. I don't necessarily say that to brag, but I'm more say like, if you can see me doing it, I want you to know that you can do it too. If you want to, like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like if you only want to ride, ride 3K on the track in that pretty environment, because 3K can be awful. It can be so painful, right? I mean, if you do it right, when, as soon as you like get off the bike, you basically dissolve into a puddle on the ground. It's a, it's a really cool feeling when your legs don't work anymore. Legitimately just don't work. 3K is awful. So it's like taking that 3K of absolute misery and then stretching it out over 18, 20 hours. So they're the same. They're like both awful but um, just different kinds. Well, you, you, you mentioned two events um, that you did this year uh, with a week in between them. But yes. you also, last year, did the lead boat challenge, which was the mountain yes. bike event. What? Yes. 12 hours of recovery. And then the Leadville, uh, I'm sorry, the Leadville, 12 hours yeah. of recovery. And then the steamboat gravel black course, which is 140 miles. So yeah. well, it's, it's, well, it's like 142 miles, 143 miles. And then Leadville is 106 miles. So it finishes out being about 250 miles all above like 9,000 feet. That's awful. Which, which, which is insane. But you said that it takes you a little bit longer to do yes. one event. So that's a little bit less recovery before the next one. Yes. How much recovery did you have in between finishing Leadville and then starting Steamboat Gravel? I had a probably about six hours. So part of my Leadville was really long last year. So I take my privilege of being a healthcare practitioner very seriously. So when I was coming down pipeline, um, another rider had hit a rock and then he launched himself off his bike and hit his head very badly and was unconscious. And his pupils were, he was in outer space for a while. So I had the privilege of getting to stay with him and direct traffic and helped until search and rescue came. And then I had three flats that day too. So like Leadville was a long day. I should have had more recovery than I did. Um, I probably had about six hours and it was a very cool feeling. Like it was wild. Cause like at steamboat, I just couldn't get my heart rate above 130 beats per minute. Like my heart was just like, Nope, you want to ride your bike very, very slowly all day. Sure. But that hill, cool. You're going to have to walk it because I'm not beating any faster. Um, it was a very wild feeling to feel, be that exhausted. So it was just a really long day. Oh, but well, I did Two it. long days, I suppose, right? With uh, <laughs> yeah. only six hours for break in between. Um, have you ever been in the danger of falling asleep on the bike when you only had six hours of sleep? You had a long and exhausting, exhausting event before, very little rest and another hours and hours of cycling. 
And when you're just riding along on an empty road, an empty piece of gravel, no. did you ever feel like I'm going to fall asleep here any second? No, I've done 24-hour mountain bike races and uh, soloed those. And like, like I know what it's like to get sleepy, but not not at Steamboat like or Leadville. Like, um, that was a very surreal experience because I, so many people like kind of tell me what I can't do. Um, like I, I applied to be in, in the Grand Prix, which I thought would be a really neat way of showing because Lifetime now has paracycling events in all of their like flotilla of races, whether it's Unbound, Leadville, the Rad, um, this weekend at Big Sugar, there's paracycling categories. And I'm so pleased uh, for them recognizing the that you know, paracycling is basically just another age group. Like you don't expect I'm digressing a little bit. We don't expect a 21-year-old to race outright against a 60-year-old. That's why we have different age groups. So I think having a paracycling category is fair and re reasonable when you think about it. You don't expect somebody using a hand cycle to race outright against somebody on an upright bike. Or you don't expect, like, I'm again, I'm a 40-year-old, but I move very differently than other 40-year-olds. So now we have a paracycling category. Um so I was really bummed last year when I didn't get accepted into the Grand Prix. Like I'm a dedicated gravel rider and they told me that I think effectively that I'm not fast enough or I'm not good enough. And I was like, I will never be good enough. And I, like, I will continue to put myself out there and into these physical challenges where people think that I'm not good enough or I can't do it. And I will do it because I can. And I will do those things for as long as I can. I recognize that often people just need a visual representation of what's possible. Um, and so they can take that away back to their communities, whether it's their cousin, their colleague, they know somebody who uses a, a wheelchair or somebody who has another physical impairment or, or not just physical, like the emotional impairments. And you see somebody doing something you didn't think was possible. Like I wear my scars so visibly, whereas unfortunately many people just wear their scars behind their eyes. We don't get to see them. We don't know them. So I'm that visual representation of the strength and resilience that we all have. Well, first of all, you're a freaking superhero in, in my opinion, to, to do what you do uh, day in and day out, to be part of, you know, riding on the track or riding on the road has got to be a lot easier in my opinion than getting into gravel or, or mountain biking. Um, but, you know, you've been, described as infectiously positive. Um, and I also read where you refer to movement as medicine. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit of that philosophy? Oh, certainly. Um, movement is medicine. Like that's uh, just like in my blood, in my bones. It's actually in everyone's blood and bones too. It's like, it's human. 15% um, of the world lives with a permanent physical impairment, according to a World Health Organization study. And a physical impairment can be, uh, I mean, there's a wide spectrum of that. But let's just think about like osteoarthritis. We are likely, the three of us here today, have some level of it. It's probably the people who are listening either have it and they don't know it, or they know somebody who has it. And the greatest treatment for osteoarthritis is movement, way better than um, anti-inflammatory medicine, way more beneficial than massage therapy, which both probably feel good. I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong or you need to do something entirely different. That said, there's, there's a saying that I love to say with patients that like motion is lotion. Like your joints respond to movement. 
uh, the cartilage in your knees are and in your backs and at the end of every joint is basically like a sponge. If you leave it on the counter, it gets dried out and kind of crusty and crunchy. You pour some water on the counter, you put your sponge in it. It doesn't suck up all the fluid until you compress the sponge and then it kind of absorbs. It sucks up the fluid, right? It's like magic. You're like, you just squish the sponge and it sucks up fluid. Your joints are the exact same way. So if you think about osteoarthritis or joint health movement, that compression, as well as the release of um, that weight bearing is what circulates the joint juice. How cool is that? And, or you think about jerky, like basically we are no different than jerky. What is jerky? It's like dried, stiff meat. But like you heat up a steak like that's been in the freezer, it's soft, malleable movement. We are the exact same thing. Like if you want, don't want to be jerky, make sure you like keep moving and drinking water. Like if you want to have healthy joints, use your joints. If you have osteoarthritis, find like there's different degrees of movement. I'm not suggesting that somebody with knee pain immediately go hike to the top of the nearest mountain. Like maybe you need to modify your movement and, and like use it like an antibiotic, like no, or a different cold medicine. Like you, if you have discomfort in one way, you need to use different movements in different ways to treat that discomfort or maintain your health. Like I could, you've opened another can of worms. Like our bodies are either getting stronger or they're getting weaker. You're either getting faster or you're getting slower. So if you don't want to get slow or weak, then you got to keep using it, not just sitting on the couch and wishing for it. Like that won't just happen. You actually have to be actively be a part of it. There's no pills anybody can give you that will make you more flexible, that will make you stronger, what have you. Like you got to just do it. Um, just doing it. Would you ever consider doing a multiple day event on a mountain bike or like a gravel stage race or anything? Oh, yes. Or you go, nah, I'm okay with just the weekend. No, I've done stage races. I've done gravel, like uh, Rebecca's private Idaho in Idaho, um, in Idaho is a three day stage race is probably my favorite event because it like one day they put gravel bikes and you know, under biking is being super cool these days. Like you get to ride mountain bike trails on your gravel bike and it is so fun. And then there's an uphill time trial, which is so fun. And then the, like the last day is I think 110 miles now of just high elevation desert riding. It's so fun and so hard. Um, I'd like to do Breck Epic or um, uh, my, I've, I'm going to try to go to migration this year or Cape Epic. I have huge desires of doing more multi-day events. Um, yeah, I love how adaptable bikes are. And I think I want every opportunity to explore my own limits and maybe help people explore theirs too. Well, you're oh, doing Jens, that do you have right something now. in mind? Do you want, you need a riding buddy? Like, um, I'm, ha I'm available. Um, I'm riding 2024 well, right now. I, I think the, the 12 year age gap, um, it makes it unfair to, on my side. I'm, I'm just not fit enough anymore. I mean, Cap Epic, uh, every uh, friend of us, George Hinkepi, has been there. Yes. And yes. he loved it. It's super hard and challenging, yes. but it's real good fun. I believe yes. it gives you a good feeling of like accomplishment when you finish. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if I could keep up with you. 
We would need I'll a training a right together so we can work it out, you know, our speeding, our speed tactics. Yes. Yeah. We need a towy, a little tow rope off the back. Yeah. I got you. Fantastic. What? I mean, yeah. I can't believe I'm having this conversation right now. Hmm. Um, I am. Yeah. We like, you know, that saying, like what we think we're not capable of is just like, as soon as you tell yourself you can't, you won't. And um, I haven't yet. There's been plenty of times where I haven't been able to do something or I've had to stop. And I think it's really powerful of knowing your limits or knowing when it is to say no. Like, I don't think it's like stopping isn't always a failure. And I think that's hard for athletes to think about that. Like, it's not a failure. Uh, Sometimes it's now, just preserving yourself you got that me. you can. Yeah. Now you, now, now you piqued my interest a little bit. So we're all told that we have to be tough, that we have to finish what we start. Um, Sometimes you do get in, you know, too deep, you know, out over the skis, if you will. Um, yeah. When is that time? And it's, it always seems to be a moving bar when yeah. you start to think, you know, hey, this is, this is not going in the right way, that, that you're not quitting per se, that you're just being safe or smart. Sure. This spring, I had a really neat... Um opportunity to, to, to step out of a race, which was something I never, never really do. And again, not saying that's like something to brag about, but like, um, so the Yomp rally was something Rafa put together down in Santa Barbara. Um, if anybody used to watch the tour of California, there's Mount Figueroa down there, um, in Gibraltar. Uh, so two epic climbs. So day one included both of them on weighted bikes. Okay. That's a lot in case you weren't sure. Google them. They're really big. I know. I've been riding up there. I know them. Yeah. They are long. Yep. They are long. Okay. Um, and so I finished um, antibiotics for pneumonia the day before I flew down. Um, so that's not great preparation. And then I'd gotten a new part. It's like you always say, like, don't race with something that's new. Well, I got a new prosthetic part like the night before this race or the start of this basically five-day epically back country, um, through the, um, Sierra Madre mountains, um, that started with roughly an 80 mile day, in, including Mount Figueroa and Gibraltar or Gibraltar and then Figueroa, excuse me. Um, and partway up, like it got cold. And also, uh, that blister that I talk about started to happen. And I stopped all day, like trying to manage it, trying to prevent it from happening. And then I bonked Oh, astronomically, like I just was a rocket going to the moon that just exploded. It was, and you could feel it coming. You guys know, right? When you're like ready to crack and then you know you need to eat, but you're like, I'm not going to eat. And then you like do eat, but like doesn't do anything. And you've just crested the ridge and you are down the other side. I was walking up Figueroa and I'm grateful to um, my photographer and partner who came and actually like got me and rescued me. And I had to stop and go down to uh, Santa Barbara and get crutches. Cause I couldn't walk for two days. Like maybe I could have ridden my bike, but I knew that if I wanted to ride my bike at all, I needed to spend time on crutches. Like that was such a, an empowering thing. I ended up getting back on my bike two, two days later after my, um, skin healed a little bit and I was able to finish with the riders, but I didn't get to do the course. Uh, Chris Burkhart like sent a crazy time on it. Lil Wilcox also did it. And like, I mean, more power to them. But when you go to these rallies, I think that's a really cool thing. To, like you can kind of choose your own adventure. 
and it doesn't have to be a race. Like I'm so motivated. You dangle a carrot. I will chase it. I will turn myself inside out. I don't care what happens, self-sacrifice. But it's like being on the other end of it and being like, no, it's just riding a bike, you guys. Like it's riding a bike. Like it's not that big a deal. Like if it's fun, good, do it. If it's not fun, don't do it. If it's legitimately like burning a hole in your skin, do stop. Like if you're not paying your mortgage riding a bike, like what are you doing? Like if it's fun, cool, do it. But like if you're unhappy, losing time with your kids or your favorite dog, because I love my dog. Oh, my cat. Let me talk about my cat another time. But like if I'm not having fun riding my bike, I'd much rather be hanging out with them. And so like anyway, like always play the priorities game. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, what do you think? Like quitting is not a failure. It's like really cool to preserve yourself so you can play again the next day. It's playing bikes. Playing bikes. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely it is. Um, so when you go to this event, what sort of team do you have? It's just, just you, your bike and your van, or is there your partner with you or whatever, any yeah. uh, sponsors, mechanics, or oh. how, how is your team? How is your support network look like? Oh, I mean, I would love to know what it's like to be on a tour team. I mean, that's never like being on the national team was as close as I got to it. because generally I was always a privateer or like on a local trade team, which was super cool. But it's great to go with Team USA because, like, you get to travel as a team. You eat together. You've got a soigneur. You have a mechanic. And, um, like, people help shuttling you to and from events. Now that I've left the national team, like, uh, what do you mean I have to plan all of my own travel? Like, that sucks. Okay. And I get my own tickets. I have to get my own um, sleeping arrangements, which often means I'm, like, Still at 40, I'm a dirt bag cyclist. I'm going to this next event with my sleeping pad and my sleeping bag, and I'll probably be sleeping on the ground somewhere. I've slept in the back of cars. Um, I am, I'm a privateer, which makes sense. I look like a pirate, peg like Meg, the privateer. And uh, I don't have any of that support. For the big events like Leadville or Steamboat or um, Leadboat Challenge, I do hire people or um, friends volunteer their time or skill set as a swanier and as a mechanic, just because the demands of those events are, it just takes so much to get them done that it really helps to have, uh, be able to trust that your bike is dialed and that somebody will like at least refill your water bottle when you switch backpacks with uh, food and nutrition. Um, I don't, I'm not a very high maintenance person. I think when you watch the Grand Prix events now, because they have the media coverage, you'll see that they're almost like NASCAR pit stops, um, like people cleaning off mud and feeding. Like I don't have any of that that help at, at um, the mo most events. Only times I get a, I get assistance are at uh, Leadville. Well, you're heading down to Northwest Arkansas here pretty soon for the the yes. big sugar gravel event. So yeah, from where you are talking to us right now to getting down to big sugar gravel, let alone yeah. finishing it and getting back. What, sure. what do you have to do to make that happen? Oh, um, pretty standard issue stuff. I, I bought my plane tickets. I uh, have a friend that I've raced a number of races with and he has a uh, space on a floor because you guys like, while I am a professional cyclist, like I don't get paid that much. Let's just pop that bubble. Like, is is. Um, 
although as a professional gravel cyclist, I have a bit more support and I'm so grateful for those companies that didn't like see value in what I do. Cause as a Paris athlete on the national team, like I had no support whatsoever, like less, like it's, that's a whole nother story. Um, let's just say like I have, I, I'm going to be sleeping on a floor. I don't have a rental car. So I'll be riding my bike to and from the venue. And, um, yeah, I make my, I make my own meals. So a couple of years ago, I was a, a physio for the live giant team. In addition to racing bikes professionally, like I raced unbound, flew home, grabbed a different duffel bag and flew to Austria the next day, Salzburg to go to Leo gang. And like, it was, that was a wild day. And then I was like, cutting carrots and massaging these elite athletes legs and I'm like then I would go out for my ride in the Alps which are lovely anyway I digress again but like to get to um or where am I going Arkansas just flight a friend to pick me up from the airport and then I'm going to sleep on somebody's floor and just be a dirt bag make my own food make food for other people uh lead a group ride lead a panel so I get to do these really fun things and then I just go sleep on the floor so listen to all your enthusiasm about uh, riding and gravel riding being active. I can see 10 more years of a career ahead of you. Um, and But if you eventually had enough of cycling yourself, where do you see your future? More in coaching or more in physical, is physical therapy? Physical yeah, therapy. Physical yeah, therapy yeah, yeah exactly. Word. Yeah. Where, yeah, where well would done. your future go, let's say, in 10 years from now? Well, um. I thought I was going to retire from the national team in 2016 and just focus on physical therapy. And I, I love helping people. I get such great reward out of doing that. And then gravel had a big growth and I realized that I could have a positive impact on maybe 500 people over a weekend. And if I stack those weekends up, like I can have hopefully meaningful conversations and have a positive effect on many people. Whereas when I work in the physical therapy, as much as I love it, I see you know, full-time schedules, about 40 hours a week. Some of those are repeat patients. So we'll just say I see 25 to 30 people a week. I, had, I truly believe I have meaningful impact in their lives. And I, again, I love that. For right now, for these next 10 years or what have you, I hope I can create a career for myself in the cycling world that allows me to share this message and share, make opportunities for other athletes in whatever shape that looks like um, so that they can feel empowered. And then maybe in those 10 years, hopefully I can still um, see patients or I just, I don't, I want to do good. I don't know anybody that goes out there and says like, I want to be selfish and do bad, but I really want to do good. And I feel like I have a story and the ability, the professional education, as well as the, cycling um, credentials to make a positive impact on a sport that's given me so much. Well, you do have a story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today on Bobby and Jens. Um, all the best with, with everything that you have in the future. And, you know, I think this is your last event coming up. So, so enjoy it. And thank you so much for sharing your story and your time with us today on Bobby and Jens. It's a privilege. Thank you. See you on the trail. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Meg for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. 
The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Please remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Meg mentioned a few great mantras she lives by. Motion is lotion and movement is medicine. What is the mantra that you live by? Please let us know on Twitter, Instagram, threads and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens. And while you are there, give us a follow, please. 